You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about science and technology. This session was originally broadcast on May 14th, 2021. Let's have a listen. Okay, hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Science and Technology Q&A for kids and others. And I can see that we have a whole bunch of questions left over here from previous times. So let me try and start addressing some of these. The question here from memes about not theory. There's some question about what is not theory and um, things about electron charges and not theory, which it's a little bit less clear, but let's first of all start talking about uh, not theory. And um, I realize I, I should have a prop for this. Let's see, I don't think I have a, a ready prop. What can I use as a prop? Well, I could, this is very dangerous. I could use some part of the computer cable here as a prop. Not theory is about what does it take to make this knotted? What does it mean for something to be knotted? It means if you have an ordinary knot, it means if you pull on the ends, it doesn't just go straight. It's kind of twisted up in the middle. Now, in, it is an interesting thing that, uh, for example, if you try to draw a knot in two dimensions, if you try and just draw a picture of a knot flat, you can't do that in general without having lines that cross over, that lines where the same line has to be in the same place on the page, two lines crossing over. But you can make a knot in three dimensions. Any knot that you have, that's some line that's twisted up and knotted together, you can always, what's called in mathematics, embed that in three dimensions. You can always render that knot as something that exists in three dimensions. Now, actually, if you wanna get very fancy math, you can go beyond that and you can say, imagine instead of having a line that's all twisted up, I have some whole surface that's all twisted up. How many dimensions do I need to go to so that I can embed that surface without ever having to have something where two things are at the same place? And there's a whole uh, sort of uh, hierarchy of sort of generalizations of knots that aren't just a single line being twisted up, but they are something like a surface being twisted up and so on. But that's a more complicated thing. Let's talk about ordinary knots. So the first question is, when are two knots equivalent? That is, when, what does it mean for knots to be equivalent? Well, it means that without untying the thing, you can just sort of, you've got two things where you say, this is how my piece of string winds around. But the, those, those, two, those two versions of winding around, you can continuously get from one to the other, you just move the string. You don't have to untie it. You don't have to. Uh, you you don't have to kind of. Um, uh, you you can you can keep the ends fixed in place, and you could just be messing around with the inside part, and so you you don't ever have to get those ends and unravel, untie the thing, and go back to to something different. So the most trivial knot is usually called by mathematicians the unknot, and the unknot is something that isn't knotted. It's just like you have the piece of string and it's straight and there's no knot in it. The first non-trivial knot is I think of the trefoil knot, which is, um, uh, oh gosh, I'm, I'm not good at this, but it's, it's the first way of knotting things together. 
And so one question is, are there only a limited number of knots or are there an infinite number of possible knots that are inequivalent? So remember, knots are equivalent if you can just continuously deform from one knot to another. So the way mathematicians usually deal with knots is a little bit impractical, but it makes things a little bit simpler. When one deals with knots in pieces of string or rope or whatever else it is, um, one it usually has two ends that are free and you're able to like pull on those ends. But for mathematicians, they usually join those ends together. So the unknot is actually like a circle of, of, uh, of string rather than a straight line of string. And the truffle knot is then a sort of a twisting of that circle. So there's a question of, for example, one, one basic question would be, are there an infinite number of knots? That is, can you just keep doing more sort of uh, twistings of things that are inequivalent? The answer, yes, there are an infinite number of knots. That wasn't known. Even uh, like 130, 40 years ago, that was not known that there were an infinite number of knots. Um, and uh, it was um, it was a whole classification of knots that was done. So for example, I think the, uh, the early books of knot classifications were knots up to eight crossings. So crossings means when you, if you were to draw the knot in a, a plane, how many times do the, 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 the lines cross over? And when, in general, when you draw a knot, you could have many, many, many crossings over, but there's a minimum number of crossings over, a sort of a best drawing of the knot that has the minimum number of crossings over. And uh, I think the, the early classifications have got up to about knot size eight. So now another question is, can you tell whether two knots are equivalent? If, if somebody just shows you, this is two configurations of string, what does it take to show that those two knots are equivalent? That turns out to be a really hard problem. It turns out that um, uh, in, in general, uh, let's see, I think, well, in the classification of mathematical problems, it is given a, a sort of a, a, a version of the, of the knot where you just have straight lines and you're, you're making the knot out of sort of straight pieces of, of string. I think the, the problem of determining knot equivalence is certainly what's called MP-complete. And uh, yes, that's right. That's right. So, so in other words, there is a, to determine whether two knots are the same, there, it is sort of exponentially hard to do that. If you've represented the knot as a, so you've got these two configurations of string and they're both represented just by these sort of discrete jumps. So you have a string going straight in the X direction, let's say, then it goes up in the Y direction, then it goes in the Z direction. So you've got a bunch of straight segments. And let's say you've got, uh, um, n straight segments, then in general, to determine whether these two knots are equivalent, you're essentially having to uh, make a separate sort of move to each of those segments. And so it's sort of exponential in the number of segments to determine whether these two knots are equivalent. Uh, at least that's the best known algorithm. I don't think it's known for sure. Well, I think it's known, yeah, I think it's known to be MP complete, which means that if you could solve the problem of knot equivalence, you could solve a whole bunch of other problems in, in, uh, uh, in computational problems. So it's probably really, really hard, um, probably irreducibly hard, so to speak. But so first question is, are two knots equivalent? So a bunch of progress was made about uh, 30 years ago now um, in, in this question of are two knots equivalent? And what was done was there were a series of knot polynomials that were invented. So discovered, I should say. 
And so what that is, is given, given a knot with some structure, the question is, is there some aspect of that knot that will be unchanged in all possible deformations of that knot? Um, and the answer is that there were these polynomials found which are characteristic of the knot itself and don't change as you deform the knot. So let me give you an analogy. So in topology, uh, topology is kind of this area of mathematics that's about the general shapes of things. So in topology, there's this idea of the genus of an object. So for example, a sphere has genus zero. Genus is basically the number of holes in the object. So a sphere has genus zero, a donut with one hole or a torus has genus one, uh, a donut with two holes has genus two. Okay, why is this relevant? Because the genus of an object doesn't really depend on the detailed geometry of the object. You can take the sphere, it, let's say it's a piece of, uh, piece of dough or something, you can, you can squash it any way you want. So long as you don't make a hole in it, it's still genus zero. But it, it is that these are topologically equivalent when anything which is, which is sort of the thing without a hole in it is topologically equivalent to the thing, to, that, to the sphere. And, and so it's the same, same kind of thing with knots. You're asking, when are two differently configured knots in a sense topologically equivalent? It's a little bit different notion, but it's the same general idea. And one way to characterize that, just like genus, number of holes, is a way to characterize the overall topology of things. So there are these knot polynomials that allow you to characterize the, the sort of the shapes of knots. And there are a few of these knot polynomials known about three or so uh, famous ones. And you might say, well, okay, so that will allow you to tell whether two knots are equivalent, but no, it doesn't work that way because two knots that are inequivalent must have different knot polynomials, but two knots that are equivalent, I'm sorry, two, two knots that are equivalent must have the same knot polynomial, but two knots that are different may not have different knot polynomials. So if there are two knots where they're just deformations of each other, they must have the same knot polynomial by the way that knot polynomials are constructed. But if you have, um, uh, uh, but if you have two knots that are different, they might happen to have a collision in knot polynomials. So you can't tell that they're different. And so that's why even knowing about knot polynomials, which are a pretty clever idea, it doesn't give you information about this knot equivalence problem. So one question is, you know, it's sort of interesting mathematics to study knots and knot theory, but um, uh, there were reasons, for example, in physics, why people thought about, um, thought about that. And there was a theory about, um, but this was in the late 1800s and not 1880s. It was a very charming theory. So at the time, people thought that the universe was full of this thing that they called ether. Just like you know, the in 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 our atmosphere, there's there's air. It's a bunch of molecules bouncing around, and when we make a sound wave, a sound wave is compression and rarefaction uh, uh, fronts in the air. So we, when we talk, you know, we're making a sound, which is compression, uh, compression, decompression of the air going out in this kind of wave, um, and that's how sound is carried. People thought in a very Victorian name. They called it the luminiferous ether, the light carrying ether. And that was thought that there was this thing, they didn't really know how it worked. There was thought that there was this thing called the ether that was a, um, 
uh, the thing that would carry light waves as air carries sound waves. And so it was thought that sort of the universe was full of such a thing. Uh, it sort of got the, the around 1900, this thing called the Michelson-Morley experiment kind of proved that in some sense, there wasn't anything really quite like ether. And that's what led to the invention of special relativity and so on in 1905, et cetera. But, and, and needless to say, in the way that science often works, there really are things rather equivalent to ether that exist today in the universe, but that's a different story. Anyway, back in the day, 1880-ish, people thought there was this thing, the, the luminiferous ether that sort of th was throughout the universe. They also were just discovering atoms and they were discovering that the different chemical elements were all different, uh, different kinds of atoms. They didn't know what was different between those different kinds of atoms that waited another 30 years or so before people started understanding about protons and neutrons and different atomic nuclei and all those kinds of things to understand what was the difference between a hydrogen atom and a, uh, a lead atom or something. What was the difference between those things? So it was a, a very charming theory that maybe all these different kinds of atoms are just different knots in the ether. Maybe these atoms are the, 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 the way that matter exists is as sort of this knot in the ether. And so that started uh, just to fill in, uh, you know, for historical interest. I mean, the uh, a person called Kelvin, uh, William Thompson was an inventor. Also the, the Kelvin scale of temperature is named after him. Uh, he was one of the people involved in this. Another one was James Clerk Maxwell, who was um, uh, the creator of Maxwell's equations for electromagnetism. Those, those two were big on this idea of, of um, uh, you know, atoms might be knots in the ether. And so that might sort of reduce the problem of why are there, why are there 92 elements, let's say, or, or, or whatever, um, uh, you know, why are there this number of distinct kinds of atoms? Oh, it's because there are a certain number of distinct kinds of knots. They didn't know there were even, at the time, they didn't know there were an infinite number of distinct possible knots. And so a, uh, a childhood friend of Maxwell's actually uh, named Tate um, was the first person who, who um, started uh, classifying knots and tried to figure out just how many knots, how many different kinds of knots there were, because people thought atoms might be things like knots. Now, needless to say, uh, in the way that you know that theory was sort of discredited, and people said, no, actually, atoms are made of protons and neutrons and electrons and so on, and the luminiferous ether doesn't exist, and that's all gone. It turns out in our uh, now that we understand in our recent theory of physics that we understand a lot more about how space and time is created and so on. Particles like electrons and so on, they're not quite knots in the structure of space and time, but there's something a little bit like that. Um, which we don't yet understand completely, um, but they are essentially topological obstructions, so to speak, in 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 that um, uh, in the structure of space-time. Well, you know, knots have had a whole long history in in their use in physics, for example, uh, and other areas. Sort of, it's a big question for DNA, for example. It's a long, you know, our DNA is like a whole meter long. Each DNA molecule inside our uh, inside our cells, if you if you just pulled it out, it will be a meter long thing, but it's curled up very tightly um, inside each cell in our body. And uh, when it curls up, there's sort of questions: Does it get knotted? Does it not get knotted? Um, there's a there's a bunch of issues there. Um, there also are questions. Um, it turns out, okay, so this question of sort of uh, uh, how things exist 
um, okay, this sort of topological question. Let me give you an example. If you have a fluid like water, you can have a vortex in the fluid. You have this little whirlpool that's going in the fluid and the whirlpool lasts quite a while. If the, it, it, it eventually the sort of the fr internal friction in the fluid, so-called viscosity, will damp out that vortex. If it wasn't for viscosity, the fluid will just keep going round in a line, like uh, in, a, in a circle like that. And so the center of that, that vortex is a tube that is essentially a line. So effectively what's happening is in the, in the fluid, there's this thing that's going around in a circle and defining where that circle, where that going around a circle goes, there's the core of the vortex is defines a line. So one of the questions you can ask is, uh, could there be a knotted vortex tube in a fluid? And I think such things were recently produced, very recently, last year or two. People finally managed to make kind of knotted vortex tubes in fluids uh, where you can have like, when you have a smoke ring, for example, if you, if you like, uh, make a make a smoke ring. Um, you can uh, um, uh, that that's a that's a vortex. That's a slightly more complicated kind of vortex. That's a, a toral a motion of the fluid that's in kind of a torus shape. Again, it's using this kind of ideas of topology to have something which is a stable structure that um, in the, in the fluid. And there are other places where you can get these kind of knots and things potentially forming. Uh, for example, in the early universe, you can potentially have it. That's actually getting us in a in a complicated story there about um, uh, the 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 kind of the the formation of kind of um, areas of the early universe that have different structure and have sort of topological uh, defects that are associated with things like vortices. So that was a a very brief um, uh, description of um, knot theory and its life and times. Knot theory has become uh, it's a it's a slightly slightly off the beaten path in some ways uh, thing in mathematics, but it has many connections that have been found to some very core ideas in mathematics to do with geometry and topology and so on. Questions here. Um, okay, there's a question from Heather here. Why does computer code involve math? Why isn't it just a set of linear instructions that sometimes hop around, like kind of choose your own adventure book? Well, so there's a, there's a big question about how we should tell computers what to do. Because any computer has a certain set of built-in instructions, a certain set of built-in things it knows how to do, the so-called machine code of the computer. And the uh, typical computers might have a few hundred kinds of operations that they intrinsically know how to do. Like they intrinsically know how to add two numbers together. They intrinsically know how to take a piece of data and store it in a certain memory location in the computer. They intrinsically know how to get uh, something from a particular memory location in the computer and then add it to something else and so on. So there's a question of what's the, when we tell computers what to do, how close are we to that machine code of what computers intrinsically know how to do? And I've spent a large part of my life trying to build computational language, which is kind of more on the human side than it is on the how the computer is built side. That is, it's more on the how do humans want to describe things in computational terms than it is about how the computer intrinsically knows how to do those particular kinds of operations. And so a good, very good example of that is, let's say you have a list of numbers, just got you know 100 numbers, list of numbers. 
or a list of images, doesn't really matter, list, list of things. And you want to do an operation on each one of those things. So in our language, in Wolfram language, um, the way you do that, you can take any operation, let's say it's image, and you want to, I don't know, uh, turn it upside down. You know, there's some function image reflect that would do that. Um, the or image rotate, whatever that, that would do that. Um, and so what you do is in our language, you just say, take that image rotate operation and just apply it to this whole list, map it across this whole list. Just in one gulp, you're you, as you think about it, are just saying, I want to apply image rotate to this whole list of things. I want to map it across this whole list of things. Okay, I'm done. Okay, so if you are thinking about what does the computer actually do to achieve that? Well, the answer is the computer goes in a loop. It says, let me, uh, let me apply that operation to the first thing on the list. Okay, I've done that. Let me apply it to the second thing on the list, third thing on the list, and so on. It, it goes through this whole series of operations to apply things to different parts of the list. Now, you know, what I believe is that the, the best way for humans to kind of get the furthest in thinking about how to compute things is all they have to think about is, I'm, a, I'm mapping this function over the whole list. Boom, I'm done. Not, oh, I've got to make this, this thing which goes this thing to this thing to this thing, and eventually I'll reassemble the whole list out of these pieces that I've made, and then that's what we have. But so when, when you think about what is the computer actually doing inside, well, it's kind of complicated. It's got to say, well, I'm starting off with, I've got the initial list, and I've got the final list. The final list has nothing in it initially. The initial list has 100 things in it. Then I've got this, uh, this program that says, pick up the first thing, do my operation, put it in the new list, pick up the second thing, do the operation, append it to the new list that I've got. It's kind of a messy, complicated thing. And in, in the instructions in the machine code of the computer, it's probably a whole bunch of instructions in the machine code to do this kind of thing. So a very common type of operation that one does in computers is to say, do this, then do this, then do this, then do this. But the thing I just described is a loop. It says, do this, then do the same thing again with some small change, like do the same thing again, but now it's being done to the second element in the list, the third element in the list, and so on. And so it's a very common mechanism that exists in the machine code of computers to be able to do that kind of looping. How is it achieved? What's happening is the program that the computer is running is just like data stored in the memory of the computer. But that data, instead of being like, for example, a table of numbers or a piece of text or something, that data that's stored is uh, it's the machine code, and it is stored in the form opcode operand. So the opcode might be operation number 700, well, operation number 15, let's say, is add two numbers. So it'd be like a 15, and then it's like the first number to add, the second number to add, or the locations and memory to get the first number and the second number, and so on. Um, and so that is like data could be, you know, if you didn't know what it was, it just looked like a bunch of numbers, but actually it corresponds to a program to tell the computer in machine code what to do. And so it's, as the computer then executes that program, it has to say, it's gonna go down line by line through that program saying, now I do this, now I execute this opcode. Now I go to the next line and I execute this opcode. Okay, so there's a thing called the program counter 
which is basically a thing that says, which place in this program are you now executing? So the typical thing is that the program counter just goes up by one. So it executes one step in the program, then it goes up by one, executes the next step and so on. So there's this notion of jump instructions, which say, change the program counter. You just reach the end of this sequence of instructions. Now go back five steps with the program counter, reset the program counter to the program counter minus five, and then, then it will start re-computing re those things again. So a typical, very typical thing is uh, operations like uh, existed even on calculators, uh, decrement skip on zero. So that, that means you'll have some, some uh, variable, some, some uh, place in memory where you're storing a number and uh, you'll get to this instruction that says um, uh, that is a, um, that just subtracts one from that number you're storing and decrement skip on zero means you usually would just extract, subtract one and then you do the next instruction. But uh, decrement skip on zero will mean if you subtract one and the answer you get is zero, then skip the next instruction and go to the one after that. So it's kind of messing around with a program counter and it's telling you how to do that. So this is unbelievably low level operations of computers. This is how the, you know, the wiring, the, the low level electronics of a computer works. It is far away from the way that people, I think, should be thinking about how to interact with computers. Um, although it is a shocking fact that, that most of the programming languages are still operating at the level of tell the computer exactly what to do, go through this loop, you know, append things to a list, rather than this sort of higher level way where it's like, yes, it, the person can understand what the computer should do. Now it's up to the people who build the technology to make that all just work, rather than the human have to go, having to go way down to the level of the computer, so to speak, and say, this is the detail of what you have to do. Now, the question here is, so, so what are, like, for example, let's take this question about how you're dealing with elements in a list. What do you do with elements in a list? So one thing you can do, what, what are the sort of high-level operations that you can do with, with something like that? So one high-level operation is to say, let's apply this function, let's say image rotate, to every element in the list. That's mapping across this list. Another thing you might do is, let's say it's a list of numbers that you have. Another thing you might do is to say, take some function and just use all those numbers as inputs to the function. So let's say the function is plus, then you're just using all the numbers in the list as inputs to that function. Okay, so that whole list is just plus, 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 plus. It just all compresses to the sum of those numbers. So that's another kind of operation usually called applying a function to a list. So then there are other kinds of operations that you can do. Um, like here's one that's a little trickier. This is essentially an accumulate operation where you say, I want to take a list and it's, let's say it's got numbers in it. And what I want to do is I want a new list that is always the cumulative sum of the numbers in the previous list. So what you're doing is you've got your first list and then the elements in the second list, you're saying the first element is just the first element of the first list. The second element is the first element plus the second element. The third element is first element plus second element plus third element. Uh, that operation is usually called folding a function into a list. Um, 
And so there are a series of these kinds of operations. And this is the story of so-called functional programming is the, the construction of these kinds of operations where you're taking a function and for example, doing things um, to, uh, uh, to a list. Um, and uh, um, the thing that um, um, is, uh, let's see, I'm confused by something here. Okay, the, the thing that um, uh, is, is sort of a, a way to think about computation this kind of idea of functions being applied to lists and how that all works. That's the story of functional programming. It, is, it, it can be a little difficult to sort of wrap your brain around at first. Once you get it, it's incredibly powerful. And for example, for me, I, I just think in those terms and I can just start typing. It's you know a fold list of a nest list of whatever, whatever, whatever. Um, and uh, I don't really have to think in detail. I never have to think about what's happening with the individual elements of the thing. It just sort of all, it's just, I think of it in kind of one go. And uh, uh, that's, that's a very powerful thing to be able to do. Um, and uh, that, that's kind of the story of, of the sort of higher level description of the computational process beyond the level of do this, then that, then that, and make a loop and so on. All right, there was a question here. Um, question here from Mikhail. What type of computer logic is the most efficient, binary, ternary, et cetera? Oh, interesting you asked that question because I was literally just wondering about that yesterday. Uh, tell you a story. So most computers, they operate, most essentially all modern computers operate in binary. What that means is, you take a number like seven, for example, and you represent that uh, not in base 10, uh, let's say number 17, for example, you represent that not in base 10, but in base two. So 17 is seven ones plus uh, one ten. Okay. In base two, let's say seven would be equal to one one plus one two plus one two squared, which is four. And so 17 would be equal to, uh, well, it's, it's 1, 2 to the 4th, which is 16, plus 1. Okay, so, and you can represent any number as any integer, for example, as just a series of zeros and ones, where you're taking, it's a positional notation, where the, the position of the 1 is telling you uh, is there is there one two to the whatever or not? Okay, so so that's the way computers tend to represent everything. It's just in binary in sequences of ones and zeros. Okay, so when a computer has to do operations, it has to uh, take these things represented in binary and and uh, uh, do do operations on those binary bits. And so the standard operations that are done are the operations of Boolean algebra, which are the operations of, of logic, which are things where you, where you equate, where you consider zero to be uh, uh, false or off and one to be true or on. And then you say, uh, if you combine two things, you can say the and of them, which means are they both true? Is, is, is A and B both, both true? So that means that true and true is true, but true and false, that's false, 
or you can have uh, or if 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 it's true or false, that will still be true. And true or true, it's still true. False or false, that's false. So it turns out that you can make up sort of arbitrary logical operations by combining ands and ors and nots and so on. You can also do it by combining just one operation called NAND. Um, NAND is not and. I don't think any human language has a single word for NAND or has a, has a sort of everyday word for NAND, but it's the not of the and. So if, if you say, um, let's see, uh, I can't do this in natural language, but, but something like um, it's raining, NAND, it's sunny. So that means that that is, actually, that's a, that's a, yeah, okay. Is it raining? Is it sunny? Those are both uh, things which could be true or false. And the NAND of those things is the not of the and. So it's, it's not both raining and sunny. That's what, that's, what, um, uh, that's what NAND of that would mean. So it turns out that just by combining lots and lots of NANDs together, you can make all these different operations. So for example, uh, let's see, which what does, takes me a while to figure this out. I think that um, like, for example, I think or is a combination of like six or seven NANDs altogether. NAND, of, if you have P and Q, it's, you know, NAND of P and Q of NAND of Q of P of et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When you work that all out, it comes out to be P or Q. So anyway, you can, you can make everything out of NANDs. And it's the, the, the mathematical terminology is NAND is functionally complete. Uh, sometimes somewhat, somewhat confusingly, it's called universal, but that's a different meaning from the sort of more formal meaning of so-called universal computation. So in any case, and why is it important to know that NAND is functionally complete? Back when it was first discovered in 1900 to 1910, it was kind of a curiosity, though people got enthusiastic about it. Um, the reason it's relevant today is that computers are kind of all NANDs. The, the individual operations on the microprocessor chip are all, actually, they're usually NOR operations, which are just like NANDs, but they're a little less famous. But they're basically like a billion NAND operations, all combined in different ways to make all the operations of logic as we, as we know them. Okay, so that's how ordinary computers work. Okay, so the other possibility is instead of just saying everything is a, is a bit one or zero, you could say, let's have things be what are sometimes called trits, uh, ternary bits, where it's zero, one, or two. Or you can think of it as minus one, zero, and one if you want to. And that would be like thinking of a number in base three rather than in base two. And so then the question is, can you make up logic that is like the analog of and, but, uh, and the analog of NAND and so on for trits instead of bits? And I have to say, I do not immediately know um, how that works. And I don't know immediately what the functionally complete operations for ternary logic are. And I was just thinking about this yesterday and thinking I should write the very simple program to find that out. Part of the reason I was thinking about it yesterday is because I was trying to track down the history of uh, some particular uh, kind of ideas. And that history uh, finds its way through the Soviet Union in, uh, about 19, 
uh, 60-ish time frame. And it turns out that in the Soviet Union, uh, there were a bunch of computers made that were ternary computers, that were computers that were based on this three-level logic. Um, and uh, those computers, I think it was one called the Saturn or something, was made around, um, uh, around 1958 or so. It was a fairly early computer. Um, and uh, uh, there was a period of time when basically computers in Russia tended to be used base three rather than base two. Um, that kind of decayed. Eventually, they started copying American IBM 360 computers, and that no longer was, the, the ternary computers kind of went extinct. But the question still sort of remains, people said mathematically the ternary computers were really interesting, but I don't know enough about them, so I can't really say whether whether that's a, a good way to do things. It was, it was certainly said that it was, and I, I just don't know, I haven't, haven't worked it out. Um, there's a question from Leonardo uh, saying that all Boolean functions can be constructed from NAND. Is it true from any other simple Boolean function? It's also true of NOR. NOR is kind of trivially related, related to NAND. So for two input Boolean functions, there are only two functionally complete. There are 16 possible Boolean functions with two inputs, and an OR, and NOT, and, and XOR, and so on, and so on, and so on. There are, there are two inputs, and for each of the two values of those two inputs, that's four possibilities, there's one possible output. So that means there are two to the four possible complete functions, or 16 possible functions. And of those 16 functions, two are functionally complete, NAND and NOR. So now you can ask questions like, what about three input Boolean functions? Um, and actually, that was uh, uh, there's a person named Emil Post, who, um, uh, who we happened to be about to do a kind of uh, centenary celebration of, of something that he worked on, Post's problem of tag, uh, next week. Um, and uh, anyway, Emil Post was, was uh, interested in the three input Boolean functions. Um, and worked out a little bit about when were there functionally complete three input Boolean functions. Um, actually, I worked on that and then completely independently, my youngest son worked on that, not knowing that I'd worked on it. Um, and I, I didn't know that Emil Post had worked on it until sometime later. So it's been looked at several times. Um, and the answer is that there are of the 256 three input Boolean functions there are a bunch, like 15 maybe, that are functionally complete. And as you go, um, and, and there's some that are more efficiently functionally complete. NAND and NOR are basically equivalent to each other. Um, and uh, the ones for, um, uh, for three inputs, they're, um, uh, they're a little bit more, there's more diversity in their functional completeness. And I think uh, uh, Christopher worked out which one is most efficiently functionally complete. Um, it's actually not an easy thing to work out, um, but uh, you're basically asking, what, are, what is the size of program made from the three input functionally complete thing that reproduces all the 256 possible Boolean functions with three inputs? And you can figure that out. Uh, I asked him what about the four input one, he said, that's too hard. At least that was a few years ago. So maybe maybe it's possible now. But uh, for three inputs, we do know what the most efficient one is. Uh, for, but what, what happens is you go to more and more inputs, the fraction of functionally complete functions actually is like, I think it's eventually like a quarter of all functions are functionally complete. So that's how that works. 
I don't know the answer for the for the um, I know it for multiple input two level functions. I don't know the answer for the three input functions. Although now that I think about it, I think in my book, New Kind of Science, I talked about the three input logic case, and I I'm I'm now realizing that I'm think there's a very good chance that there's a note in the back of that book that has the answer to this question. Uh, that book is uh, today actually is its 19th anniversary of its publication. Um, and uh, so that means that whatever work I did on this was probably 25 years ago. And I, I remember a page of that book that is about uh, multi-level logic, but I don't remember what the, what the answer to this is. Um, there's a question here from Aman. How does NAND realize NAND? Well, it's very easy. It's, NAND is already NAND. So you don't have to worry about how you make a NAND out of NAND. But it is the case that many combinations of NANDs simplify to just a single NAND. So you can have, and I cannot possibly do this in my head, but like, for example, it could be that NAND of P and Q, the NAND of that with Q of the NAND of P and Q and so on, when you untangle that, it just comes out to be NAND of P and Q. So there's an infinite collection of expressions. See, let me give you an analogy. Let's say that you have algebraic variables, X and Y, and you're trying to make the expression X plus three Y, for example. Well, you can make that by saying X plus Y plus Y plus Y. You can say it by making X plus X minus X plus Y minus X plus Y plus Y, something like that. There are actually an infinite number of algebraic expressions that you can make that all simplify to the same that all have the same value, x plus 3y. And the same thing happens with NANDs. You can have this sort of infinite collection of sort of nested NANDs and so on that all collapse down to just NAND of P and Q. So it's sort of the same way that that works. Okay, let's see. Well, there's a question here, um, question from Simple. Why are we only considering first order derivatives of position velocity and second order acceleration why are higher derivatives not relative, apparently? Okay, that's, a, that's an interesting, that, that question has a, has a much uh, stronger sting in its tail than you might have imagined. Um, okay, let's see if I can untangle that. So first question is, let's say, so this is sort of the part of the basic story of calculus. The, there's this idea, I'm at this position. Okay, great, position, call it X. It's, you know, I'm at position 3.7. I've got a, a line and I'm, I'm numbering off where everything is. I've got my position X is 3.7. Okay. Now let's say, imagine that position changes with time. Okay. So we're asking how fast does that position change with time? How long will it take me to get to 3.7 plus a little tiny bit? 3.7 plus another tiny bit. So that's asking me, the rate of change of x with time. And the rate of change of position with time is velocity. That's telling me how fast am I going? How, how much am I changing my position per unit of time? Okay, so that's velocity. So then the next thing we can ask is, okay, great, we're, we're changing our position as a function of time. We can also ask, how fast are we changing? How fast we change our position as a function of time? That's the so-called second derivative of the position. The velocity is the first derivative, the first uh, rate of change of position with respect to time. But now we can ask, what's the rate of change of 
of, of velocity with time and acceleration. So in principle, when you put your foot on a gas in, in a car, it's, it's accelerating the car. It's making the car, it's putting more force into pushing the car forward. And Newton's second law says the force that you push something with is its mass times its acceleration. So it's saying you put force on something and it causes acceleration. It causes the velocity to change at a certain rate. So you keep putting that force on something. Let's say, uh, and this is, uh, you know, you're trying to make some starship go to the next star. If you just keep putting the same force on it for a long time, for a year, you keep making something accelerate, it's going to be going really fast at the end of that year because it's just progressively uh, increasing the velocity as a function of time because you're, you're pushing it with that acceleration. So uh, position, velocity, acceleration, all widely used, widely studied. We talk about them all the time. The next derivative, the third derivative, is the rate of change of acceleration with time. How much does the acceleration change with time? So for example, let's say you're putting your foot on the gas in a car, and let's say you are gradually putting your foot on the gas. As you push your foot on the gas, it increases the acceleration of the car. But as you gradually put your foot on the gas, the rate at which you put your foot on the gas, that's the rate of change of acceleration with time. Now, the thing that's most common is when you have a rapid change of acceleration, and, and usually the name for that is, it's usually called the jerk of um, how much does something jerk? How much does it uh, the rate of change of acceleration is like when there's a high rate of change of acceleration, it's like uh, in a car, it's like it jerks you back or forward or whatever. Um, so the rate of change of acceleration is a single jerk. It's often called jerk. Um, it's, uh, it's not particularly widely studied. Um, the, so now the question here has to do with... Um, Yes, okay, this question is a bit tricky, actually. Okay, so fundamental fact known to Galileo in the 1600s is that, or believed by Galileo, is that in some sense, if you are moving at a certain velocity, everything can happen relative to, your, relative to you in the same way that would happen if you were at rest. So imagine you're in a uh, train car, and it's all, everything's blacked out, and the train car is moving perfectly on a track at a certain velocity, certain, certain speed. And you're doing all kinds of things in this train car, you're having your breakfast, whatever else. You can't tell as you dig into that uh, you know, piece of breakfast, nothing about you digging into that piece of breakfast uh, can you tell any difference about the speed of the train car? It could be going at uh, 10 miles an hour or 90 miles an hour, so long as it's perfect and you're not hearing a clickety-clack from the track or something like this. You, you can't tell as you're eating your breakfast, you can't tell how fast the train car is going. And that's a general principle um, that was originally talked about just in terms of ordinary mechanical kinds of things. Uh, the theory of relativity, Einstein's special theory of relativity, is all about how you can't tell even, uh, well, it, it's, it's that the speed of light will always appear constant. However fast you're going, if you're shining a flashlight, then you might think, oh, if I shine a flashlight and I'm going really fast relative to sort of the, relative to the universe or something, relative to my train track, then my flashlight uh, would be 
would have to, would, would we, the effective speed of the light is the speed of the train plus the speed that the light comes out at, which would be bigger than the speed of light. And so the key idea, which actually was part of Maxwell's equations, and then kind of the, the consistency of that was what came out in special relativity, was the idea that actually when you shine that flashlight, even if you're going really fast, half the speed of light, the light coming out of your flashlight will still only be going at the speed of light. How can that possibly work? Well, this was the idea of special relativity. The idea is that can work just fine if you redefine your notions of length and time. So in other words, that, that the light is coming out at the speed of light, but you, uh, you're redefining what there is a, a contraction in time, the contraction in length, there's a dilation in time associated with how fast you're going relative to somebody who's at rest. We can explain how that works actually in our theory of physics, we finally have a very straightforward way to understand time dilation, to understand the idea that if you're going fast, then you're effectively, uh, if, if you think about what the way that you perceive time, it's about you are sort of, your brain is operating, your brain is kind of computing things at a certain speed. And in a sense, the way that that computation is working, it's, it's changing things in the universe as a result of the things that you're thinking about in your brain. And what you realize is that when you move, when you move from one place in space to another, you're also changing things in, the, in sort of the, the, the way that in the structure of the universe. And you kind of have a choice. You can change things in the way in the structure of the universe by moving to a different place in space, or you can change things by just evolving in time. And time dilation comes about when you're moving in space, you are effectively using up your computation in the process of that motion in space. And so you don't have sort of as much computation to use up in, in going forward in time. And so time in a sense appears to go more slowly for you because you already used up a bunch of the sort of computation that you might have used to evolve in time by moving in space. Well, in any case, so, in, in relativity, uh, there's sort of this idea that if you are, uh, if there's no acceleration, if you're just moving at a certain velocity, you can't tell what velocity you're moving at. You can't tell about it with mechanics. You can't tell about it with electromagnetism, etc. You just can't tell. Okay, but as soon as there's acceleration, you can tell. Imagine you're eating your breakfast and so on, and the train car is suddenly coming to a halt. Okay, we all know then your breakfast gets thrown to one side of the train car. That's because unlike with, with, um, uh, uh, with velocity, with speed, where you just can't tell, you're merrily going along and you're going at the same speed and you're, you know, your knife and fork are going at the same speed and you just can't tell what speed you're going at. As soon as there's acceleration, splat, you're on the, you know, your breakfast is on the, on the floor type thing. Okay, so... The next thing that happened in sort of the history of physics was Einstein's general theory of relativity, and that involves this thing called the principle of equivalence. And the principle of equivalence says, you can't tell the difference between the acceleration of the train car and your breakfast falling on the floor and going splat because of acceleration and your breakfast falling on the floor and going splat because of gravity. In other words, if somebody uh, had tipped the train car up and there was gravity, was pulling your breakfast down in some direction, um, then that is the, the there is no difference between acceleration and the force of and the effect of gravity. 
Okay, so that's that's the um, so that's the the principle of equivalence. The idea of so-called general uh, general relativity is this idea that a gravitational field is equivalent. You can't tell the difference between a gravitational field and acceleration. Okay, so now the question that's being asked here is, what is the analog of that for uh, for change of acceleration? Well, the answer is that the case of, of ordinary acceleration is the case of a uniform gravitational field. So on the surface of the Earth, the Earth is big enough that the gravitational field is more or less uniform. It uniformly just pulls things down in a straight line towards the center of the Earth. But in, in general, the gravitational field doesn't have to be uniform. If the Earth, if we look at the Earth from a long way away, we'll see the gravitational field is sort of going out in all directions from the Earth. If we were to look at um, if we were to look at the gravitational field around a black hole, for example, an ordinary black hole that isn't, isn't spinning around rapidly um, has gravitational field that also just sort of goes out like a hedgehog. Um, but a spinning uh, black hole has a more complicated configuration of gravitational field that involves things like frame dragging, which is sort of a, a, a sort of a vortex-like thing in the gravitational field and so on. So there are more complicated gravitational fields that you can get by having more complicated configurations of, of mass that produce gravitational field. And, and so what happens is in, in a uniform gravitational field, that's where this principle of equivalence that says it's just like uniform acceleration. Okay, but in a more complicated gravitational field, you can have something that is like other configurations of acceleration and even uh, change of acceleration and so on as a, as a result of these these uh, more complicated structure of gravitational field. So something like the principle of equivalence would be true for this more complicated kind of configuration, but you would say, so the question is, can you invent a configuration of the gravitational field that will be indistinguishable from jerk, from acceleration of, uh, from, from change of acceleration? And so I think you could do that. Let me think about this for a second. Um, Okay, so I suspect, let me think for a second. Um, well, there's a small effect of that. Yeah, okay. So there will be a, uh, it won't be linear change of acceleration. How would you get that? Uh, well, let me explain what I was thinking of. So on the surface of the earth, the, acceleration due to gravity, the acceleration that is the equivalent of the gravitational field, things accelerate at 9.8 roughly meters per second per second. So that means think every second, things are going faster by 9.8 meters per second. So in principle, if you drop something from a big height for a while, it will go, it will, it will keep going faster and faster and faster and faster. And every second, of the time it falls, it will go faster by 9.8 meters per second. Now, that's not really how it works because um, in air, there's air resistance. And so actually things reach a terminal velocity that isn't even very fast in the air. There was a famous experiment done by one of the Apollo astronauts who, picked, who had a feather in a rock that he took to the moon. And uh, the moon, of course, is, has, doesn't have an atmosphere. It's just a vacuum. And he drops the feather and the rock and uh, needless to say, they, they fall at the same speed. And uh, that, that's fortunate because otherwise there's no way a spacecraft would ever have gotten to the moon because all the calculations are based on that idea. But in any case, 
So at the surface of the Earth, everything just falls 9.8 meters per second per second. But as you go further away from the Earth, the gravitational field gets gets lesser, less and less. And by the time you're at the um, by the time you're far away, like at the position, or like like the the um, uh, uh, let's say at the position of the Moon, you go out to the position of I don't know Mars or something. The gravitational field, the gravitational effect of the Earth is pretty small by the time you get out to the position of Mars. It goes down like an inverse square law, one over the square of the distance. And so what that means is that acceleration that you get by something falling towards the Earth, that acceleration is changing as you get closer to the Earth because the gravitational field, instead of it being 9.8 meters per second per second, it'll be, you know, at some point it'll be one meter per second per second. Then go even further away, it's 0.1 meters per second per second. So that means there's a change of acceleration as you get closer to the, to the Earth. That change of acceleration will not be, it'll be according to this inverse square law thing, it will not be a linear change of acceleration um, of, of the kind that you would get from the third derivative of a position. So the question is, what is the configuration of masses? What, what shape would the Earth have to have such that its gravitational field will produce a uniform change of acceleration, the uniform change of gravitational field as a function of, of position? And let me think how you work that out. Let's see. We need to invert uh, how to do this. Um, uh, let me think. Um, so I think, hmm, I don't think I can compute this in real time. I have this vague feeling that some conical arrangement of matter would have this feature, that somehow as you get, if you're in a cone, and as you're falling towards the apex of the cone, that you might have this effect, that you have just a pure um, uh, sort of increase of acceleration with time, a pure so-called x triple dot, third derivative of the position. So in any case, so the answer is, I think that with a certain, it just doesn't happen to be a very popular configuration of masses that lead to a third derivative of position, but you certainly could make one and uh, you could be discussing it. And I, I think, um, yeah, that is just not one that really comes up very much in general relativity and the theory of gravity, uh, but it, it could in, in principle that, that um, uh, could exist, and, and you're asking why they're not relative. Well, the answer is they are. They still obey this principle that you can substitute change of acceleration for gravitational fields, just a more complicated gravitational field than for pure acceleration. And uh, yeah, that was that was one that required non non elementary knowledge of physics. So, uh, all right, let's see. Um, you know, I was asking what the derivative of acceleration. I, I I think it's usually called jerk. Um, I think the um, uh, that comes up. Derivatives of acceleration are not particularly common, but it comes up in things like uh, drones and helicopters, and that's a that's a thing that ends up being. Uh, let's think. How does this work? The issue is, if you as a human are controlling something, let's say you're making your car go faster. Okay, people understand how to put their foot on the gas and make the car go faster. But it turns out for some kinds of control, you need to be controlling the third derivative. And it's pretty hard for humans to kind of get in mind how that works. Um, so that, that tends to be a limitation. It's why, for example, uh, you know, drones, which, uh, you know, have automatic flight controllers, 
that determine, you know, make this rotor go slightly faster so that you, the thing remains stable and, and remains kind of, um, uh, you know, as you push down one side of your four rotor drone, the thing will just, that, that rotor will be running faster and pushing you up faster. Humans find it very difficult to do that kind of control. That's why when people tried to build quadrotor devices um, back, you know, in the days when they were using, you know, internal combustion engines for that rather than electric motors. Now, um, it wasn't, you know, you could have a human try and control it and humans found it really difficult. And that had to do with being able to control the third derivative, as I recall. And, and humans just find that really hard. All right, let's see, maybe one more question. Um, and then we should wrap this up. Uh, lots of very interesting questions here so i i look forward to tackling them next next time um the question from frost here do you think emotions will emerge out of intelligence if computer scientists continue to make general ai do you think the more general more intelligent it gets the more emotional it will get it's an interesting question so you know what are human emotions they you know human emotions are kind of like in some sense, we think about things at some rational level. We imagine, you know, there's logic we can deduce for this from that. But then there's this kind of overlay of, and we feel this way about what we're doing. And what seems to be the case is that there are, in our brains, there are these neurotransmitters that are the things that are actually responsible for, for taking signals from neuron to neuron and things like that. And different emotions probably are associated with different amounts of those different neurotransmitters. And we can kind of get a sense of that. People often make up, it was particularly popular close to 100 years ago now, these kind of, uh, these kind of charts that represent you know, the space of emotions. Like you can be happy, you can be sad, you can be angry, you can be content, you can be uh, impatient, you can be patient. That maybe isn't an emotion, I don't know. You can be, you know, there are these, these various kinds of dimensions on which you can plot you know, uh, happy versus sad or something. Um, you can sort of plot these emotions and, and you, you can map those to some extent onto, you know, the smiley faces, so to speak. The, the, a, a famous thing, Charles Darwin actually did this, um, had this uh, book actually called The Expression of Emotions in Animals and Man. And uh, the, the, his main observation was, uh, you know, you can, you know, we all have this emotional reaction. We're happy, we smile. We're sad, we kind of frown. And turns out, as Darwin claimed, animals like dogs and, and so on have similar kinds of facial expressions of what seem to be their internal emotions. Um, and of course, that can be captured to some extent with you know, emoticons, you have the smiley, and you have all of those, um, uh, those scales that you know, often exist of you know, how satisfied were you with this, um, uh, this customer service, you know, press the button from the smiley, it was great, to the frowny, it was awful. Um, that's sort of a, a representation of that emotional scale. But so, so there's this idea that emotions are somehow on these various scales with some number of dimensions of, of different kind of happy to sad, this to that. And there's some possibility that those actually correspond to, in the end, to levels of neurotransmitters in our brains. Um, and uh, there's sort of a question when it comes to animals like cats and dogs and things, maybe a lot of what is 
communicable, a lot of what we can recognize is emotions similar to our emotions, possibly even because it's the very same neurotransmitters that are getting different levels in the brain of the cat and so on. So, so a question is then, how does, you know, how do emotions relate to kind of the human experience? How do they relate to the kinds of things we want AIs to do? And, um, you know, I think that that is, uh, to what extent emotions are kind of an overlay, like, you know, when you have a piece of music, you have definite notes that you're playing, this note, that note, that note. But then you have the sort of the, the instructions, you know, play it fast, play it with vigor, play it, you know, tentatively, so to speak, or, or whatever. Those are kind of the emotion script that goes along with the actual sort of these play these specific notes and so on. And I think that's a similar way to the way that one might think about emotion in the context of what we're normally thinking about in terms of sort of uh, a computational language, symbolic AI, these kinds of things. Um, so I think that's, um, and, and when you ask the question, you know, can you teach a computer to recognize whether that face is happy or sad? Yeah, it's easy. You know, we, we have a little function called facial features that does exactly that. It can tell you, you know, is this a happy face, is this a sad face? Um, you can, uh, uh, it's easy to do sort of from the outside. How does that affect, how does, if you have an AI and you say, okay, I'm going to give you uh, the AI a piece of virtual chocolate, so be a happy AI, um, you know, how does that then affect what the AI does? It's complicated. I, mean, I don't think we really know at all how to map sort of the emotional uh, overlay that humans use about sort of the overlay on thinking about things into the level of, so what's the answer to that computation? I mean, two plus two is always equal to four, whether you're happy or sad. Um, but something like, um, uh, you know, it might be something like, is this, do I, is this a good piece of music? Well, you know, the good piece of music when you're in a really upbeat, really energetic things are, you know, mood, might be a different good piece of music from the one that's appropriate or that you consider to be a good piece of music when you're in a really, you know, spaced out, tired, down kind of, kind of state. And so sort of mapping that stuff onto how computers should respond to things, it's, it's not a thing that's been much done. I mean, there, there are various approaches. People talk about, um, you know, affective computing and things, and they talk about kind of how to, how, uh, in a user interface, for example, how, you know, if, you, if you're talking to the, talk to the robot, so to speak, talk to the bot, depending on its facial expressions and whether it seems to be happy or sad, you may respond to it differently. It's kind of the, the human interface may be different if it looks like you're talking to the bot and the bot is really interested in what you're saying and the bot is smiling a lot when you, when you tell it this, you may respond differently in terms of how you interact with that bot. But if, if, the, if the question is, will sort of somehow the notion, the idea of emotions somehow pop out of kind of what we're doing in AI, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I think that we have to ask in, in, in biological evolution, you know, what was the role of emotions? And I think probably emotions were an earlier form of kind of thinking in the following sense that, you know, if you're a if you're a, a, a mouse or something and uh, things are happening and it's like, oh my gosh, something is chasing me. It's like, I'm afraid. What do you do if you're afraid? You run away, okay? 
Whereas the more sophisticated mouse will say, let me consider that thing that appears to be chasing me. I believe it is a robotic cat. And that robotic cat has you know, motion that only goes in a straight line. And therefore I really shouldn't be afraid. I'm just working out. If I go in this place and that place and the other place, I'm just gonna avoid the robotic cat and all will be good. So I, I kind of think in that evolutionarily, probably sort of the emotions just wash the brain with serotonin or something is, is kind of, you know, make, make it respond in a way that's, that's uh, it's probably sort of a, a lower version of what in, in humans ends up being sort of higher thought process. It doesn't mean it's any less real for us humans, but it does mean that it's, it's probably something where in kind of the, we want AIs to do things for the sake of, of solving a problem of, of some kind that's a, a well-defined sort of science type problem, it's probably not really a relevant thing. When we want the, the AIs to interface with humans, well, emotions are a, are a big deal for us humans. And so if we want the AIs to do things which are, which are a good match for how humans uh, sort of deal with the world, then the AIs have to have that capability as well. But it's sort of a, a capability that you're kind of, I think, it's kind of more of a bolt-on capability than a natural progression of if the AI can emulate the thinking of a human in this way and that way, then necessarily there will be some sort of emotional overlay on to that, to that kind of thinking. I kind of suspect it's the other way around, that it's a more primitive form that um, it's kind of like uh, you could, and you could teach the AI, you know, based on this input, I should be a happy AI or something, but it's it's sort of an overlay and not part of the, the sort of detailed processes of, um, of, of the sort of thinking like activity of the AI. All right, well, I should wrap up here for today. Um, and uh, thank you all very much for lots of interesting questions. I realize as always, as I explain these things, I, uh, I understand them a little bit better myself, and uh, I hope some of that understanding is uh, useful and interesting to people. But um, thanks for joining us here, and uh, see you another time. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.